when you take the anxiety off of you, the well of emotion that you can actually access and the way you can show up as a functioning human being and give, and you can even receive more, your life just like, it's like a light gets flicked on. And I couldn't believe I had been living with so much angst and was just okay with it because it was just, you know, it was like, well, this is just how it is. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, welcome. I'm Katie. I talk to people and record my conversations and I've been doing it here for a while. This week, I spoke to actress, advocate, musician, philanthropist, and producer Tori Joel DeVito. She recently wrapped up a six-season run on the NBC drama Chicago Med, so you might recognize her from that or her countless other acting credits. You've definitely seen her before. And this conversation goes in so many different directions, but a few years into her acting career, she began volunteering in hospice and that really shaped her. And and we start there and go in so many different directions, talking about gentleness within routines, navigating change in her industry, her creative practice. We talk about what it was like to grow up around the icons that she grew up around, you'll hear this, but her mom is Stevie Nicks' best friend and her parents actually met on tour with Stevie Nicks. Her dad played drums for Billy Joel and that experience really shaped her work ethic and influenced her. We get into a lot of her work outside of acting, which is activism. She is on the board of directors for a really important group that promotes women's safety and health and rights and talks a lot about consent called Safe Bay. And this conversation is really important and timely always, but we get into a little bit about sexual assault and education. And I really loved speaking with her. We spoke over Zoom just last week. She was in Michigan at her farm and I'm so grateful again that you're here. If you want to know more about me and my work, stick around at the end and I'll give the emoji of the week. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. You'll find out at the end. Enjoy my conversation with Tori. Thank you so much for being here. So you mentioned that you're in Michigan. I'm so eager to hear about that. I, I grew up in Michigan. I'm I'm from there and I... You did? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm from East Lansing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I wrote this down to talk to you about it because I, I heard that you have a special connection to Lake Michigan and it's a really special place for you. And I heard you talk about Petoskey Stones and I know them very, very well. And uh, One of my really close friends from college is from Petoskey and another one that's her last name. And yeah, so, so tell me a little bit about oh, wow. being in Michigan and, and what your farm is like there. That's so cool. Yes. So I didn't actually grow up in Michigan myself. My mother is from Michigan originally. And I did spend every summer in Michigan as a kid visiting my grandma and my aunts and cousins and uncles and all that. But it wasn't until I started doing Chicago Med 
my mom had gotten a place in a different part of Michigan than I grew up. And it was closer to the, it was, she actually lives on the water, on the lake. And I just would go there. It's a two hour drive from Chicago. And I would go there and I just felt such a spiritual connection to Lake Michigan, one that I never knew I had. And then I went to this crystal shop in town and I found the Petoskey stone and it just became such a calming stone for me. And I just fell in love with Michigan. And I, I, even though I grew up coming here so much, I don't think I realized how beautiful Michigan is until actually kind of recently. So, so I ended up buying a farm here and I just, I love it so much. I'm not here nearly as much as I'd like to be, but whenever I do get to come, it's like a little haven and I just, I love it. I love it. I feel such a connection to it. I love hearing that. It's so funny. I was actually, I had like a work call this morning with someone from Ohio, but he was saying his wife grew up in Michigan and and we were talking about how it's a pretty underrated state. It's such a beautiful state. And obviously, you know, people know about the Great Lakes, but I feel like there's a lot of, when you live on the coast, people talk about a lot of other places and it's, you know, it's such a gem of the Midwest. I was happy to hear you felt connected to it. My home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which to be honest with you, selfishly, I kind of love it. I'm like, that's fine. We can keep it like this. Not everybody needs to come. (laughs) Yeah. We'll cut this But no. It's it's so it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so you grew up in Florida. Have you always felt connected to places? Sort of. I mean, I kind of I grew up in New York until I was uh, ten, and then I moved to Florida and um, spent fifth grade until I was eighteen, and then I lived in LA for twenty years, and have fortunately got to travel um, for work all the time. So I love exploring new places. And I feel like every time people ask me like, Oh, where do you live? I'm like, I don't know. I like literally almost like everywhere right now. I don't know. I I don't live in like one place, but the only other place I really felt truly like connected, connected to, I feel really connected to England and I feel really connected to the countryside in France. Every time I've been to those two places, I'm like, I've definitely been here many times before. I don't know when exactly, but I feel so connected. I think that's so cool. My my friend Lacey talks about that a lot. Of She was really feeling drawn to Scotland for a long time and she had a baby recently, but mm. she's not you know able to live there right now, but she just felt that connection somewhere. And I haven't, I don't know, I haven't like had that experience that you describe and I've, I've heard her describe and other people but I think it's really interesting. I, I feel like being I in the pandemic kind of unexpectedly moved to LA from New York. And I, I feel very it feels very correct as a life choice for me to be here. But yeah. I don't know as much about like having that very like spiritual, almost, you know, kind of hard to describe feeling that you're talking about. But I think that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. It kind of feels like when you know when you meet a person and you're like, I've I've known you before. Like I I, I just know you. It feels like that really. Yeah, totally. Which I've had with people and just not with the place so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's plenty of time yeah. right, to yeah, find that, sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, you kind of mentioned this, you know, as an actress, you have had the opportunity to, to move around a lot. And I've heard that from so many people. As you said, you don't really live anywhere and you're an actor. That's kind of the, the common thing I always hear. And you know, with that, are there any practices or things that root you 
into the newness of a new place and help you to feel yourself when you do move around a lot? Yeah, for sure. It's really funny because I always joke that I'm somebody who craves home and stability so much. And it's like so ironic that I chose this career that gives me the antithesis of that. (laughs) But yeah, every time I go somewhere new, I like to set up my hotel room. Like I like to bring the things that I want to bring and and the essentials that make me feel homey and make me feel really like warm and cozy or like the certain books I want. I like going to the store, finding like a good candle for my hotel room. I like having incense and whatever crystals I wanted to bring on the journey with me. Sometimes I bring my tarot cards most of the time. And so I like to set up like my bedside table with all this stuff that reminds me of home because then it kind of looks like my bedside table at home. And then I always, every time I go somewhere new, I look up vegan restaurants around town, metaphysical bookstores around town, crystal shops around town. And going to those places kind of helps me meet people that I feel like will be like-minded in a very unknown city. And so it kind of makes, it gets me excited. You know what I mean? Or I'll look up like trails or paths to like go walk to explore nature in that place. And then I start feeling like very at home because I can connect with nature. I can go, you know, meet really cool people at the bookshop or whatever. So those are kind of like my checklists of new places. Yeah. I think that's, that's such a great way to do it. Right. When we can do things that make us feel like ourselves. I, before the pandemic, I was traveling by myself and I call it my eat, pray, love that never ended, but (laughs) and I went into Mm. a health food store and I feel, I was like, I think I said this on my story. Like I feel so at home here. Like as soon as I smell nutritional yeast and like bulk items, like I'm, I'm just yeah. like, I could be in Michigan or I could be in Indonesia and it's like one and the same, you know? There's something yeah, so absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I love it's, that it's nutritional yeast for you. That I love that. I know it's very fragrant and I love it, but I know that some people don't. I do too. I think it's interesting. Like with what you're saying about going into these these places and then that's how you can also meet people or just have an experience of or like a kismet connection or the person tell, gives you a suggestion of where to go to dinner or you know there's a spectrum of how that could go and that really takes being present you know it really requires rooting into your surroundings and noticing and i think that itself is a bit of a meditation and something i'm i'm trying to do more regardless of where I am. And I think it's easier Uh when I'm traveling and I've spoken to musicians who talk about like it being easier when on tour, because when we're in our daily life, we're a little bit inundated by the busyness of errands and to-do lists and all of that. Yeah, actually, that's that's funny you said that. I always joke with my friends because they're like, well, when can we schedule this? When are you not working? And I'm like, I actually busier when I'm not working than I am when I am working because at least I have a structured schedule when I'm working a little bit. I I know the days I'm going to be working at least a week in advance. But when I'm not working, it's like an audition can come up, a meeting could come up. You know, I have life things now that I actually have the time to do that I have to do, you know? So yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It it reminds me of this line from like, I like having an empty day or like one thing on my day where I can be really present and follow the flow of what's in front of me. And and it actually reminds me of this line from A Course in Miracles that 
I heard so many years ago and I saw that you were, you were reading it and you're a, a student and, and teacher of it. And so I'm, I'm curious if, if this tracks with you, it's, it's something I'm not even going to get it correct, but it's like, where would you have me go? What would you have me say? And to whom? And so I'm curious how you relate to that line. And if that's guiding yes. your day at all. I actually say that to myself every morning when I wake up, I say, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom I say that every single morning. Cause to me, then it's just like, you take your ego's not in control of your day anymore. When you put it in the hands of spirit like that, it's like, Oh, I am relinquishing my day to something so much bigger than me. So maybe the small little mundane day I could have had, or my ego could have created. Now it can be so much bigger because I've given it over. I love that you just quoted that. Yeah. I say that. I say that a lot everywhere I go (laughs) in hard times and in good times. Yeah. I I think it's great. I mean, I've brought up this on the, on the show a couple of times because it resonates with me, but Eckhart Tolle has this line when it comes to manifestation or it comes to being present where he speaks about, he, I think he says, who are we to know what we want? Right. You know, and, and that's what I love about the line from the course. It's like, mm, if mm-hmm. you are just really present and allow and help other people and look at what's in front of you, you're probably going to have a better experience than if you're clinching to something that's out of our control. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. We kind of got right in there and, and, and you mentioned, you know, you're, you obviously have this spiritual connection and, and mindset that believes we're all connected in some way as, as I do. And, and I know that impacts your, your choices from, you know, ethical fashion and beauty to how you treat other people and spend your time and days, obviously. And so I'm curious, you know, what's a lesson from your spirituality recently or something that's made an impact on you and your work recently that's come in? Uh, Recently, I think the thing that has been most impactful for me, I think through my spiritual journey, I struggle a lot with forgiveness, whether it's feeling like somebody wronged me or something I've done and forgiving myself. And I never understood the difference between forgiveness and being a pushover or, or something like that, you know? And I was like, well, so what, just anytime somebody comes and spits on my floor, I'm just supposed to send them love. Like, I don't understand this concept. And then I read, I can't remember what book I read it in recently. And they equated forgiveness to, they were saying that actually Jesus was misquoted that when he said the word forgiveness is actually the Hebrew meaning of it is actually supposed to mean like divorce or like, so you divorce yourself from the situation that is harmful. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that to me really clicks because it was like, once you detach or divorce yourself from a situation that you're in pain from, then you have the capacity to send love. You're not sitting and stewing in, oh, well, I just said them love and now they didn't say sorry back. And and how does that work? Am I just being walked all over? It's like, no, you've detached yourself from the situation. And so that's really helped me in all walks of life, in personal relationships, in working relationships and everything. Just thinking of that as, you know, forgiveness as just detaching from something that was harmful or hurtful or whatever. I really love that. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. That, that's such a 
useful one because, you know, there, there's also that line that I always love of like, I think it comes from the 12 steps. That's like holding a resentment is like drinking poison. And a lot of this is subconscious, you know, like it's mm, the stuff yes. we hold on to hurts us. <laughs> Absolutely. It hurts us so much. And that's another thing that kind of like piggybacks on that is, and a lot of what, of course, in Miracles talks about is your perception, right? Like you can turn a prison into a palace or a palace into a prison. And that I think goes hand in hand all the time with, for me, with, with the forgiveness thing. Cause it's always like, okay, I'm in this situation right now. I'm not feeling great. I'm not doing this. And it's like, yeah, because I'm perceiving it that way. Right. So that helps me in all those areas I just listed too, like work situations, personal situations. It's like my perception of the situation is the only control over the situation that I have. So why not change it? Why not make it a positive one? Yes. Yeah. I think releasing control is, is a, like the most useful spiritual practice because like, that's kind of why I believe spirituality exists, right? Like every religion, every spirituality exists because we are not in control and right. we're all going to die and none of us know when and how. And so we want to hold on to something, right? And absolutely. I think I read that your mom and dad <laughs> yes. met with Stevie Nicks and your dad played with Billy Joel. And so I'm, I'm curious, like what it was like growing up around such icons and how that impacted your creativity and spirituality and mindset. Yeah. My parents did my mom and Stevie to this day are still best friends. And my mom was on tour with Stevie and my dad was on a hiatus with Billy. They weren't touring over a summer or something. And so Stevie asked my dad to play on her solo tour. And that's how my my parents met. And yeah, it's so funny because obviously growing up the way that I grew up, I know was very specific, but also the only thing I knew. So it's so funny when, you know, I was like, oh yeah, my parents like totally gave me their blessing to move to LA and pursue my acting career. As soon as I graduated high school, people were like, they didn't like force you to go to college or whatever. I'm like, no, but I came from such a like musical artsy family that that was just kind of like, I think they would have been more shocked if I was like, mom, dad, I'm going to get, uh, to get my PhD. They'd be like, what? <laughs> but, um, growing up around that, I think it definitely affected my creativity for sure. I mean, there was always music playing in my house. We were, my dad was always playing somewhere. I was always going to shows. I actually started playing violin when I was six because Billy had a violinist during the Stormfront tour. It was the only time he had a violinist and I fell in love with watching her. And so I asked my parents if I could play and, and then I started taking lessons. So that kind of really catapulted that. And then it kind of like, I think that upbringing really helped when I started my career because I was really young and when you're starting your career, when you're in the middle of your career, especially in this business, you're around a lot of different egos and, and a lot of different people, you know, some negative, some positive. And I think that growing up around people who as a young child, I saw being respectful to everyone and whether whatever was going on behind closed doors, they definitely kept away from the kids if there was anything. And so what I saw from very, you know, quote unquote, iconic people was well behaved and really kind. And so I think when I started this business, 
I was like meeting a lot of people who weren't as kind. And I was like, wait a second, what? I grew up around these people who sell out stadiums and stuff who I didn't see acting this way. Like what? So it kind of like right then and there, like very quickly made me decide like, I am not going to fall into this path. I am going to always treat people with respect. I think also my dad was always so close with the crew on Billy's tour and sometimes would ride on the crew bus because he just wanted to hang out with his friends, you know, more than like whatever else. And he's every time people come up to my dad, I always see him just so kind to every single, he treats every single person exactly the same. And so that is something that I definitely um, feel and hope that I carry through throughout my career. So yeah, the whole experience, what I got to grow up around definitely helped mold me in my career, in my life, artistically, personally, everything. Mm, I love that. They sound like really special people. I'm, I'm really happy that you were, and, and you yeah. sound great too. So it, it makes sense. That I love that image of you at six years old, <laughs> looking at the violin player and being expanded by that. And so I'm, I'm curious, I also read that you played in the Florida symphony when you were in high school. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your trajectory. Did you want to pursue music when you were young? When did acting come in? Yeah. So music was my main focus all the way till I graduated high school. Really. I did. I played at the Florida symphony youth orchestra and I played for weddings when I was in high school and just practiced and practiced and practiced. And it was really my sole, sole purpose during my formative years. But I think that early on, I kind of realized like I wasn't in love with orchestra. I loved playing violin, but I didn't love orchestra. And I didn't really, if I was being honest with myself, didn't think I was quite good enough to be a lead traveling soloist. And so I was like, I don't want to be in an orchestra forever. And I think that the seed kind of got planted for acting when I was seven. And I went to see Les Miserables for the first time ever on Broadway because I was so in love with the role of Eponine. I've seen that play probably eight or nine times since then on Broadway. And I'm just like, still, it gives me chills because it just reminds me of what lit such a spark under me when I was seven years old. And my mom at home made me a costume, an eponym costume. And my dad would play Marius for me. And I would just like recite every single word from everything and just sing all the songs. And so I think that that kind of, kind of started the, the process of acting then. And then when I was 15, I kind of stumbled into modeling some people Christy Brinkley, actually, who was married to Billy Joel, she introduced me to her agent. And so I kind of started modeling a little bit and I didn't love it because I just, it didn't really fit my personality either. I just, I was really shy at the time. And so this photographer said to my mom, you know, you should put her in an acting class to open her up because she's very shy in front of the camera. And when I stepped into the acting class when I was 15, I just fell in love with it. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. So I did continue modeling here and there until I was about 18 years old because in Orlando at the time, it was really great. I would do like commercial modeling or, you know, modeling for like Dillard's in the newspaper or something and get that extra cash as a teenager to help me save up to move to LA. But I, I started studying at 15 acting then and doing little guest spots on shows that were 
coming into Florida or whatever and, and knew that, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I went to, I started going to a professional children's high school because I started working so much that I couldn't go to high school regularly. And uh, I graduated six months early and I got a manager at 17 and then packed up my Explorer Sport at 18 and drove to LA. Wow. That's so cool. Wow. I'm, I'm so happy that all of that happened like that for you. So you, you studied acting from, from 15 on. Is there a piece of acting advice that has made an impact on you that you either got from your studies or from all of your years of experience at this point? I think one of the things that impacted me the most, I mean, when I, I, when I moved to LA, my manager set me up with this acting coach named Michael Wilson, and he really changed my life as an actor. He took me from having some natural talent and kind of being at the surface to really being able to dig deep and access all my emotions and things that I didn't even know I could access. Like I, I do feel like I am a working actor because this man came into my life at 18. But one of the things I feel like I recognized in his class and even in the classes in Orlando is I saw so many people that I felt like had so much natural talent or some people that didn't have much natural talent, but then sometimes the people that didn't would work. And sometimes the people I felt did wouldn't work. And I realized that honestly, work ethic is probably the number one thing I think that really makes people successful. I saw somebody in acting class that I remember came in and, you know, not trying to be judgmental or whatever, but I was like, didn't really think that they did the best scenes or whatever. I was like watching. I was like, Oh yeah, but the nice person, like it doesn't really matter, but they worked their ass off. And I am telling you, then they started working. And then they built a consistent life off of being an actor because they wanted it so badly. Good for them. Yes. Good for them. Right. I was like, it's amazing. And I think moving to LA at 18 and now I'm 37, I've seen so many different waves of actors come in and I'm realizing like the ones who are still steadily working that I know that are on shows and in movies are the ones who on the weekends, if they got an audition for Monday, they're home on Sunday. They're not, you know, going to the birthday party in the middle of the day or going out for a drink at night. It's like, no, sorry, I have to work on my audition. And the ones that I don't see working anymore are the ones that I know didn't prioritize that. So I, I just think work ethic makes all the difference. That's such a good one. And it's so translatable to literally any industry. And I've been actually thinking about similarly, Joan Didion has a line in one of her essays about essentially like spending more time alone and developing a craft. And I've been feeling like I need a lot more of that, like just to to parse through things. You have to be alone. And, And to your point of like not going, saying you can't go to the birthday party and turning things down. And it's easier to do that when you know what you are saying yes to and you're excited about something. That's such a translatable one. Thank you. Yes. I actually love that you said that because the yes thing is so important. You have to make sure that you are saying no to things because your yes is so big. Because then I got to a point where I was really alienating myself from certain family functions or friend functions and things like that and felt like I was starting to become a little too alone. 
And I was like, okay, wait a second. Like, I love my career, but this doesn't feel like a huge yes anymore. I didn't have to not go, you know, leave Thanksgiving early because of this. This audition didn't even actually mean that much to me. I'm just so trained now. So then I had to kind of recalibrate my yes and go, okay. So life now is a huge yes for me too. And my personal relationship. So, and so is my career. So how do I meld that really tailoring it to you? Yeah, that, that's such a good point too. I I feel similarly, I had like a, a big moment of understanding that a couple of years ago when a relationship ended and my mom said to me something like, you know, the work will always be there. The people won't, you know, and really reprioritizing. And I, I'm con- I think I overcorrected after that. And I really, you know, became a bit boundaryless with friends and, and socially, which was good, especially when you're moving to a new city. But I think now I'm, I'm craving, you know, coming back to center a bit or trying to find a bit of both. Sure. Yeah. It's always moving. Yeah. Well, you know, with that, things are always coming in and out. And I'm curious, how do you lean on your practices and tools in times of transition or times of, of change? It's funny you say that because I used to get really stressed out kind of moving all around. And, you know, I had said to my energy healer that I work with, her name is Janet Raptus. I had said to her, I was like, you know, it's so stressful because I feel like I'm never home. And, you know, sometimes I leave my crystals at home or my cards at home and this and that. And she was like, everything you need, you have. You can go outside and literally touch a tree and say a prayer and you're there. You can take your shoes off and walk in the grass. Or if it's winter and you can't do that, you can literally just sit down and meditate. Or if you don't have time in the morning while you're taking a shower, you can pretend the water coming down is golden light that's protecting you for the day and say your prayer in the shower and you are good. I have to remind myself that everything I need, I already have. These like tools and things that we use and stuff, it's it's just like an enhancement. It's so fun. But really, you already have all those tools inside, which was a great, like, I was like, Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> great. Yes. I, that's so good. She sounds incredible. I, I really, you know, the, this show is called let it out. And I wrote a, a book that came out a couple of years ago. It has the same name. And the book is about journaling. And, and the topic obviously of the show is these, you know, long form conversations, which are just meant to, to, to your point, to Janet's point, it's the answers are within you, you know, they're you listening and you and me, you know, like they're in us. We just have to let them out. And the, the work that we have to do is to, you know, be nice to ourselves, essentially slow down, be kind, come back. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of change, we're, we're kind of in a collective one with the pandemic. So I'm curious how that has shaken things up for you or if it's brought up anything for you these last two years or so. Yeah, it's brought up a lot for me. I think it brought up a lot of me kind of feeling for the first time that I lacked so much inspiration. Like I can't even tell you over the last two years, if you would have told me, which I think a lot of people have said this, but if you would have told me that I had almost a whole year of nothing to do, or at least a good six months of nothing to do. And I had to stay indoors. I'd be like, Oh, great. I probably wrote a book or wrote a script. It did nothing. It's like, it was this weird 
lull that just like came over my body these last two years. And I, I couldn't like the in-home workout, I just couldn't do it. And so I started developing more body aches than normal. None of my clothes fit because of the last two years, I gained like more weight than I've ever gained in my life. And I just like, it's like, I almost found this sloth version of me that I didn't really know was there. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. Who is that person? And so, yeah, these, these last two years have definitely been challenging. And I think now, you know, I got off my show in May was when I finished it. And so a lot of my actor friends over the last two years have kind of acclimated to this whole taking meetings and auditions over Zoom. You're not seeing anybody in person. And I'm just kind of getting my feet wet with it now because I didn't have to do that because I had a job. Thank God. I was so grateful to have a job during that time. But now it's like, I almost feel like I'm behind in school because I'm like, wait a second, how are you guys making this work? And they're like, you'll get used to it in about a year. And I'm like, a year? Mm. <laughs> like, what the heck? I don't know how to do any of this. So it's it's been I for for everyone, but listen, I have my health and like I said, I've been able to work during this. So I even feel guilty saying it's been challenging, but you know, it's definitely had its moments, that's for sure. But I know a lot of people have had it a lot worse. Yeah. But you know, it's like it's so like cool that you're saying that, but also, you know, Brene Brown always talks about comparative suffering, you know, or like even a paper cut hurts, right? It's you know, your experience and totally and so much. Totally. <laughs> yes. This week's episode is brought to you by Native. I am truly thrilled. My friend Christine gave me some of their deodorant a couple years ago, and I honestly I've never smelled better. It's incredible. I love it so much. This might be the time to rethink some of your personal care products and find one with really simple ingredients. And that's what Native is. Native cares about the products that you put on your body. They really care about what they make. And they're all about stopping the stink right away. That's the Native difference. Native's coconut and vanilla scented aluminum free deodorant has been a customer favorite for years. I'm one of those customers ever since Christine gave it to me, truly. Vanilla coconut is so good. And now Native is on a mission to overhaul all of your hygiene products. They have so many more things now with very, very simple ingredients like shea butter and coconut oil. So you can smell great all day long. It's deodorant that checks a lot of boxes. It's aluminum free. It's 24 hour odor protection, zero residue on the skin and they have over 10 cents to choose from. I just really like the coconut vanilla one, but I also have the eucalyptus one, which I also really enjoy. You can go to Native's website and find out that they also have body wash, bar soap, toothpaste. I've been using their toothpaste too, actually. Shampoo, conditioner, sunscreen, everything to take your self-care and your skincare and your body care to a whole new level. This year, up your personal hygiene routine with Native. Go to nativedeo.com slash let it out or use promo code let it out at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash let it out and use promo code let it out for 20% off your first order. Thank you, Native. 
We're all really inundated with email right now, at least I am. And it's no longer about responding to everything, it's about responding to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in, today's sponsor. Think of it as EMT for your email. So as messages flow in, SaneBox does some triage for you, sifting only the important emails into your inbox and directing all the other distracting ones into your sane later folder so you know which messages to pay attention to now and which ones you can get to later. It also has a lot of really nifty features like the sane black hole where you can drag messages from annoying senders that you don't want to hear from again and saying reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. That one's really helpful for me. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. You don't have to make a new thing. It's really, really easy. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial try it completely free. Visit sanebox.com slash let it out today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's sanebox.com slash let it out. I want to talk about your hospice work. I'd love to hear how you got into it and why you decided to volunteer your time specifically there. Yeah. So I, I swear, I would, things, I'm sure you know this too, things just come in when they're meant to come in. I think I was 24 and I was working on my first like really kind of big series that I felt like people, like I was doing a TV show that I felt like, oh wow, people are really going to see this. And so I was so excited and I thought that that would give me so much happiness. And I remember being on set and really feeling like very depressed. Because I was just in a sound stage every day with reconditioned air, and there was a lot of negativity on that set, and a, a lot of people that I really kind of struggled having to be around. It was a lot of energy that I was taking in, and I was like, "Whoa, this is kind of this is kind of nuts." Like, I don't know if I'm made for this. Like, I love acting, but I just don't know if this business is for me. I think you know, I do have a really tough skin, and I can, I, I do. I really am very strong, but I was like, I don't know if I'm built for this. I'm not sure. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, the best thing you can do when you're depressed is to uh, focus your attention elsewhere. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start volunteering somewhere. And so I literally at home did a Google search and I was looking into, you know, maybe volunteering at a children's hospital or something. And I put in children's hospital and the first thing that popped up was hospice. And I had never even actually heard of hospice. I didn't know what it was. And so I clicked on it and I read about it and I called them and they were like, oh, we only do a training like, you know, a certain like once every six months or something, but we happen to be starting one this weekend. Do you want us to sign you up? And I was like, yes, please. And I went and it's a three weekends for three weeks. And I just fell in love with it. And then I started doing inpatient care and I fell in love with it even more. And it's so funny because the people around me were like, you're already feeling depressed. Like, isn't like being around death, isn't that going to make you more depressed? And I was like, actually quite the opposite. Like it added this light into my life. And I just, 
I loved it so much. And, and it, I honestly, I think it kept me in this business because (laughs) without it, I think I would have like maybe stepped away. Although there was a time that I thought, Ooh, maybe I should be a funeral director instead of an actor. Mm -hmm. And I really thought about going back to school for that. And then I was like, well, I'm already here. Might as well stay in the acting industry. And if I want to do that at some point, maybe I'll revisit it another day. (laughs) Wow. That's really cool. I mean, I I always go back to, there's that Ansan Suji quote, right? Of like, when you're feeling helpless, help someone. And I, I recently had a similar experience where I was basically like talking about a situation a lot, like, I don't know, like a a mild heartbreak or like a crush or something. And one of my friends was like, dude, I know what is happening with him. Like I know. And I'm like, oh my God, great. Okay, cool. Like tell me everything. She was like, you need to start volunteering. Like that's why this is so bad. And I was like, oh, God damn. And I started volunteering and I, I'm do, I am working with kids. I'm doing like writing, um, tutoring, which is really cool, but helps turns out. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's that funny. is so great. I love that. <laughs> well, going back to, to hospice, I, I think I heard you talk about this before, but can you share, you know, any more about that experience for you? And I think you talked about what people to our point, you know, before about finding that, that middle spot with work and not overdoing it and being able to enjoy your life. Because I, I'm pretty sure you spoke about this, but people weren't talking about work when they were dying. They were talking about three or four other things. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Being around people who were dying given you know when you're on hospice you have six months or less to live and I realized that every patient that I had nobody ever sat on their deathbed and was like oh you know what I really want to talk about right now my job (laughs) you know everybody really wanted to talk about who they loved or who they maybe feel like they regret that they didn't show enough love to they want to talk about family they want to talk about where they traveled and yeah, it wasn't all great. A lot of times, like I said, they would, you know, be like, oh, I regret not saying yes to this marriage proposal so long ago. I just what I just didn't know how to love then and this and that. You hear the most amazing stories when you do hospice volunteering. But yeah, nobody spoke about their jobs or how much money they made or their career. And I realized I was like, if you don't, you don't, your soul doesn't take that on with you, you know? So I just was like, okay, that's a really good lesson of like, I work because it makes me happy, but I, I want to be very careful not to fully make it just all who I am, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else other than that about that experience that changed how you engaged with life after? I mean, other than like just realizing that living life every day. Like it is your life. You really don't know when we're going to go. Nobody does. You can't. And hearing a lot of the people speak about certain regrets they had or, you know, certain family feuds that maybe they didn't feel like they got to tie up before their time was coming close. It just made me realize, you know, that stuff sometimes is really futile and sometimes it is worth it to just kind of put your pride aside and tell the people you love that you love them every day. Make sure you're happy. You know, it also put perspective in me. I'm 
never used to be very afraid of death, but I'm less afraid of it now too, because being around it like that, you, uh, for me, it made me go like, oh, you know, it's just another version of birth, birthing into whatever is next. And it's really not so scary, you know? Yeah, that's a really beautiful takeaway. You're on the board of directors for Safe Bay, which sounds like an amazing organization. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about your work there. And could you tell us about the organization and why you wanted to get involved at the level that you are with them? Yes, I love Safe Bay. I watched a documentary one night called Audrey and Daisy. And it just hit me so hard. It's about sexual assault. It's really hard to watch, but I do recommend that everybody watches it. And I was so affected by it that I made some calls and I was like, okay, I have to find these girls because I want to work with them. And I looked them up and they had started an organization called Safe Bay, the girls that were the subject of the film. And I got in touch with them. I had a conversation and I've been working with them for the last, I think, five years, because I think they've been around only for six years. I told them, I was like, look, yes, I will send any Instagram, any tweet out that you want me to, but that's not what I want to do. Like, I want to go to these schools and talk to these kids with you. I want to do things. I want to be on the ground floor, like doing this work with you guys. I don't just want to be, you know, whatever, doing things from behind my phone. And they've really given me the opportunity to do that, which I feel so fortunate to be able to do. You know, I get to go to high schools and Safe Bay has their own curriculum that teaches kids about sexual assault and sexual consent. And we get to go to these schools and talk to these kids, whoever wants us there, you know, any kid that wants us to come to their school, all they have to do really is kind of reach out and we'll come. Even if their school doesn't want us there, because Most of the time we're embraced by the schools. Sometimes I think the topic of what we bring scares the schools. And if that's the case, we just recently, I was in Rhode Island, I think a couple months ago, and I spoke to about eight schools there. And one of the schools didn't want us to come. So the students reached out to us and they said, if we rented a room in the library, would you come talk to us? And we said, of course. And 30 kids from from that grade showed up. And I was like, it's just so inspiring because I feel like kids want this information and just being able to talk to them and talk to them on a very real level. Um, high school was not the easiest thing for me. I didn't love high school. A lot of people, you know, feel like, oh, it was the best time ever. I didn't have that experience. I left public high school after my sophomore year. But up until then, it was... A very challenging, I went to a very challenging school. It was a very big school. And I just didn't have anybody that I felt like I could really look up to or a mentor. And I didn't have anybody that really told me where my, how I could say no or where my no is or empowered me in that way. And so I feel like I just really, really struggled during my high school years. And so I made a promise with myself. I was like, I'm never going to meet a high school kid that's not going to have this information that I'm not going to talk to candidly and treat them like an equal, you know, because I, I feel like a lot of adults are scared to talk to kids about sexual consent and assaults and all that stuff. And when we go in, they open up in a way that is just, I'm so inspired by a lot of these kids. And then what they do, they start their own clubs in school and they bring this curriculum into the school and then they know their rights and they know, you know, what they're entitled to. And 
They know everything from like their, what they're entitled to, to bystander intervention. They know everything, you know, through the curriculum and we're very accessible for them to talk to, you know, our Instagram, we're constantly looking at the messages and responding and, and we're a youth led organization. So all of our content is created by everybody uh, 21 and under, which is great because me at 37, I don't know all the lingo anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just, it's an amazing organization. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, I, I wish I would have had that. I, I feel similarly to how you felt after watching the, that documentary. I haven't seen it, but, it, but I want to watch it. And, you know, I didn't like many people I'm 31, but I mean, I think many people my age, even slightly younger and we didn't have this language around it and understanding. And there is so much ambiguity in it. And I had a similar experience recently on the plane home from Michigan, actually. I came back after Christmas and I watched Promising Young Woman for the first time and I hadn't seen it. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. It's intense, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's so intense. And then, you know, since then I've just been like, it really made me kind of consider so many things from, which was similar to how I felt, you know, and, and I think it was 2017, 2016 when, when everything was starting with me too, it just things that I just didn't even clock when I was younger. And even now recently experiences that I've had that I'm like this content that you're teaching, I'm trying to teach myself and, and had some questionable experiences even recently. And, you know, I just, it's so important and I, I'm, I'm so happy it exists. And, you said something in a interview that I I saw where you talked about how you saw a play where they called a sexual assault that happened rape and you it helped open up something in your mind. Can you talk about that cuz I've I've been recently having some similar experiences, you know, and if this curriculum had existed in schools, we we wouldn't be having that, you know, later in life, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so happy you said that because I was just thinking of that instance actually in my mind right now when you were talking about everything you were just saying. Yeah, I I was probably like, I was in my mid-20s and I went to see Slut the Play. Uh, my friend, actually Daphne Zuniga, she played my mom in the first series I did. She took me and um, I was sitting there and a, a, a guy in the play had stuck his hands down the actress's pants and touched her inappropriately. And she called that rape. It was called rape in the play. And I was sitting there and I was like literally gobsmacked. I was like, what? But rape, there was no penetration. Like what? And I realized like I grew up in a time where rape is like when somebody grabs you down a dark hallway and rapes you and then that's it. And when I realized that it's so much more than that and sexual assault like that, that is rape being touched like that, that is rape. And, and that is sexual assault. And that's not just, you know, boys being boys or whatever. And I was like, my mind was blown. Like I had to go home and really process it for a while. And then also things coming up, you know, for me of situations I had been in where I was like, Oh my God, how did I not know how messed up that was? And like how I didn't even know to even have a voice about it or to have a feeling about it. And it just kind of rocked my world. And so I think that's why when I watched Audrey and Daisy, 
I was like, that what happened to me in high school of just not being numb to it, but just not knowing that I have a right to say no. No kid is going to come into my path that's not going to know that they have a right to say no. And I do not mean to exclude boys because boys are so a part of this conversation. I think it's like one in six boys will be sexually assaulted in their youth and like one in three girls. So, and also I think that's the only problem. And we say this in Safe Bay too. The only problem I have with Audrey and Daisy is it does make it look like it's a female versus male problem. And it's really not like boys do need to be a part of this conversation. They are being affected. And it's amazing when we have conversations with the teen boys right now in the school too. And they're, you know, seem like they're really willing and eager to learn this curriculum every time we come to, which is really exciting. Yeah. It seems so clear and obvious that every school would want this based off of what we're saying. And also just our very limited sexual education that we have. Yeah, I'm just kind of my mind's blown that not every school wants this. But do you think it has to do with us being afraid of talking about sex and pleasure and saying no? Absolutely. I was just going to say absolutely. So uh, this woman that I look up to so much, the only other like <laughs> person my age in the Safe Bay organization, she said to me, her name's Shell. She said, I said, why don't all these schools want this curriculum? It's so important. And she said, because if you talk to kids about sexual assault and consent, you also have to talk to them about pleasure and not many adults want to do that. And I'm like, oh my God, but, but, but it's, it's like this, you know, I mean, look, I think they still have like V cards in the South in certain schools. So we are so much further along than we were, but in some places we're really not, you know, and it it kind of becomes evident when you do do these school tours and stuff and you meet, you know, or you get resistance from certain schools. And it's just, it's like you said, it's like, but why not? This is just so beneficial, but we're getting there. Yeah. You know, it it really bums me out because like I said, I, I even had an experience like very recently that it's okay. And I'm like, okay. And I've processed it with my friends and therapists and it's like, fine. But I just, the muscle isn't really built for me. Like I kind of knew when it was happening that it wasn't really something I wanted to be doing, but it was happening and I I was an active participant up to a certain point. So there was like a lot of nuance and I didn't really have the language and it just like became something I didn't really want it to become. And it's not like this is new. Like this is something that's been happening my whole life, unfortunately, but I was so much more hyper aware of it because of my education now and because of hearing stories of others and watching, you know, films like Promising Young Woman that I think how I felt so uncomfortable now is a direct result of my increased education where previously I just wouldn't have even clocked it, which I guess is progress in a way, but also kind of bums me out. Right. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry you went through whatever you went through, but I'm so glad that you're having that awakening and being able to talk about it and express it and watching these things that are kind of, I mean, the awakening is so it's shocking, isn't it? It's like how it's, it's just, it's mind blowing that we could look at the person that we were that went through these things and go, how did we not know this? Right. Mm -hmm. But what I find to be so cool right now is these, the youth are so quote unquote, woke. I'm going to sound so old saying that, but I feel like what 
they're going to experience is so different than what we did. And I'm so grateful for that. You know what I mean? So I kind of mm-hmm. feel like we had to be, you know, kind of the way the women who burned their bras in the sixties and stuff were the trailblazers for us. We're kind of doing the work and the trailblazers for them to hopefully not have to experience the culture and the way we did growing up too. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, even like the, one of the friends that I shared this with was just a couple of years younger than me and had like, I, I kind of shared it in a very casual, like, and then this happened, this, and, it was, and I've done that, like, it wasn't great, but, and they were like, I'm sorry, pardon, what? Like, they were so, and then that, like, you know, kind of like a mom seeing your own blood or like their reaction changed my reaction. And I was like, wow, I think this is our age gap and my lack of education. It know? definitely is your age gap. Absolutely. I went through something actually very recently in the last like year and a half, two years where somebody was speaking about my body inappropriately on set and I was really uncomfortable. And when I spoke to people that were older than me, it was like, well, isn't that kind of just a compliment? And then I had to call my 26-year-old friend and say, hey, this is happening. And they were like, absolutely not okay. Absolutely not. And I'm like, how am I getting my wisdom from you know, my youngest friend versus like everybody older and wiser that I was meant to talk to? But I was like, it made me sad for the people that I did talk to that said like, isn't that a compliment? Cause I was like, we're just so conditioned to think that we're so, that's so ingrained in our brain to think that if, you know, I'm walking down the street and a guy comments on my ass that I'm supposed to be like, yay. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, no, that's not, that's not. But like, like we said, the younger generation, they get it. They're, they're getting it and they're, they're teaching us right now too. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I want to touch on mental health, which is related to this, and and anxiety. And I love to hear you speak about the connection between you know anxiety and creativity and connectivity and productivity. I I co-host this second podcast with my close friend Serena Wolf. It's called Spiraling, and we in that go over our we talk about what we're spiraling about. We we also talk about anxiety triggers and being able to identify them, as well as tools and coping mechanisms. So I'm curious, you know, if, when you realized you were anxious and and what are some of your coping mechanisms and ways you work with it now? Yeah, I think my anxiety kind of started when I was in my teens, for sure. I started realizing that I didn't realize it then, but I realize it looking back now, like my anxiety, my OCD came out with cleanliness. <laughs> I had to share a bathroom with my sister, which sounds so silly. And she's just the complete opposite of me when it comes to that. And I used to get these panic attacks if I felt like things weren't tidy and I didn't know what a panic attack was and I didn't know what OCD was. And now looking back on it, I do. And so when I got older and I started getting these weird, um, not, I shouldn't say weird, but these things that would just bother me or send me into spirals or I'd feel like so out of control. And then I'd just be paralyzed on the couch or have this like crippling anxiety. Like I couldn't do anything. I was like, I got to a place where I just didn't know really what to do with it. I was like, oh, this is just part of my life. And I I would joke. I'd be like, well, the anxiety is like doing cardio. It keeps me fit. Or like, I'd be like, well, the anxiety makes me a good actor because I can just cry on the drop of a hat. And if I don't have my anxiety, will I even be a good actor anymore? Like, I don't think so. So I better keep it. And it's just like such an unhealthy spiral. And then when I actually got into meditation, I really was resistant for a long time because of that. I was like, I was like, how crazy is it that I don't want to get healthy because I'm worried I won't be a good actor? <laughs> I was like, that's yeah. ridiculous. So I started meditating. And then I realized that actually when you take the anxiety off of you, 
the well of emotion that you can actually access and the way you can show up as a functioning human being and give and you can even receive more your life just like it's like a light gets flicked on and I couldn't believe I had been living with so much angst and was just okay with it because it was just you know it was like well this is just how it is and now without it it's like my life has just completely changed I'm just such a calm person I think my boyfriend actually said that he's like I just feel like I want to fall asleep all the time when I'm around you because you're so calm it's so wonderful and I was like I think you're the only boyfriend that probably could ever Mm -hmm. say that about me (laughs) because all the other ones before I was meditating and doing all this work are probably like what she's like she's like drinking a gallon of coke what are you talking about (laughs) so yeah it's crazy what the tricks your mind plays on you (laughs) Yeah, how cool that you can show your growth in that way, though. That that compliment really shows, you know, <laughs> change. That's really cool. <laughs> well, okay, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. So, just say the first thing that that comes to your mind. Ooh, best thing you've eaten in the last week? Mm, nachos. Mm. When you're having a bad day, what is something that you do to like redirect or pivot? Read a good book or hula hoop or take a bath. Mm, So good. What is your greatest lesson on friendship? It has to be 50-50. You can't just expect your friends to want to build a friendship the way you want to build a friendship. And just because speaking to myself, I don't like talking on the phone. Sometimes I have to pick up the phone, even though I dread it, and talk to my friends because they like that. (laughs) Mm, So good. Greatest lesson on creativity. Don't be a jack of all trades. Pick something and try to be really great at it. Greatest lesson on romantic relationships. Oh, don't treat your partner like your enemy. Sometimes I feel like it's one of the easier things to do when you get angry because romantic relationships will step on your wounds and triggers more than any other relationship in your life. And remembering that that's your partner and speaking from love and learning that in the middle of an argument, it's okay to take some space and walk away so that you don't let it get out of control. And just remember that you guys are on the same team. Mm, So good. Greatest lesson on family? That unconditional love in the family is really important. And it's okay sometimes if you feel like you don't like certain people in your family, as long as you show up and love them regardless you can work through the the liking part. <laughs> mm, yeah, so good. You have talked about morning routines and being someone who likes having habits and routines in their day. That's something I always ask here, like, you know, first few things you do in the morning, last few things you do before bed. And I heard you say something that really stuck with me, which I love because I don't wake up early naturally. I like the mornings, but I just, it's really hard for me to wake up. And as an actor who has to wake up really early, it's sometimes hard. And so I'm curious, you know, what are some of your morning routines? How are you kind to yourself within that? What are some things you do every morning or evening that are helpful? And just how do you relate to habits and routines in general? Yes. So my morning routine obviously changes with if there's an early wake up. Because I, like you just said, I so wish I was the person that naturally woke up at five or six or even seven or eight. I have to set an alarm if I have to be up at nine. Okay, let's just be real. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I could sleep like a teenager. 
Yes, me too. If you gave me the day, I could sleep till 11 easy. No problem. Mm. None at all. I was like, shouldn't I have grown out of this already? Same. But you know, when I do have the day to just do what I need to do, or if I don't have to be anywhere till late, I do love waking up, meditating first thing. I read my Course in Miracles workbook lesson for the day. I meditate. I love to write in the morning. I'll do like three pages at least after meditating. And then I like what what I'm doing right now actually is I finally want to actually get through the entire text of the course. I've never gotten through the entire thing. I've always gotten like halfway through and then stopped. So I'm reading a chapter a day for 31 days because there's 31 chapters. So I've been doing that every morning. And then at night, I really love just like unwinding, lighting some incense, taking a bath, going into bed, reading a book, saying a nightly prayer is really important to me, saying a morning prayer is really important to me. And then if I do have to be up early in the morning and I can't do my morning routine, then like Janet taught me, sometimes I will try to wake up at least 20 minutes earlier so I could do a 20-minute meditation. If I kept hitting snooze, then I will do a routine in the shower where it's like the golden light just like washing over me. And then I'll try to find moments in my day where I can have little breaks and I try to write or read what I wanted to read and kind of try to like fit it in throughout the day. Mm, I love that. It's so gentle. Do you still play music? You played on a Stevie Nicks song, which is so cool. (laughs) I did. Yeah, that was so, that was so fun. I actually lost one of my best friends 11 years ago now. And she wrote that, she dedicated that violin part to he and I and um, had me play it in his honor, which was really, really amazing. Just so beautiful. Yeah. But music is something that's really hard for me. And I try to explain this to a lot of people. Like my co-star on Chicago Med, um, Nick Gelfis, became like a brother to me. And he's an amazing musician. And he was always like, let's jam, let's jam, let's jam. And I was like, you don't understand. I grew up as a classically trained violinist. Jamming was not, is not in my repertoire. And it scares the living hell out of me. Because I'm used to, I can play really well by ear. And I can read music. But like kind of doing my own thing on the violin is not something I really do. And I feel like it's kind of inhibited me now because I don't play in an orchestra. I'm not playing professionally. And I would love to just pick it up and jam with my friends. But it scares me so deeply. So I do play on my own. Over the pandemic, I met this violinist in Chicago. And we did like a virtual duet. And I posted on my Instagram, which was really fun. But unfortunately, I've kind of been bouncing around everywhere and moving and all this stuff. And I haven't played in close to a year, which is embarrassing to say as long as I've ever not played in my life. And I have been looking at my violin every day and she's definitely calling to me and I'm definitely terrified of her, but I just need to pick it up and start playing again. Um, I also went through a shoulder injury, so I actually couldn't play this last year really, but I'm better now. So there's no excuses. <laughs> it's so interesting I, as I'm listening to you. So another Chicago and Andrew Bird, do you ever listen to his music? Yes. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. He did the podcast many, many years ago or a couple of years ago. Cool. And he talks about how 
and I think, you know, I'm sure he's talked about this in many places, but he had to like leave Chicago and, and take some time because he, like you, is classically trained and had to like really do something different. And, and he talks about how he had to actually, I'll send you like, there's a good quote about this. I'll send it to you. But he was basically like, I had to have all the rules and have all the structure to be able to break them, but, and make his own really specific thing and sound. And that always stuck with me too, you know, in, that's translatable, like what you said about acting and, and other ways. But I think to do that, you have to have like the time and space and, you know, it can't be forced like any, like what we, you know, the whole full circle of this conversation. Right. Oh my God. I love that. I love his music. Actually, one of his songs was actually one of the songs that me and Nick wanted to kind of play together just for fun and like a duet together. Oh, no way. That's funny that I brought it up. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Cause I think to the point that we've been trying to make over and over again in this podcast, it's like the gentleness piece of like just being nice to yourself and kind to yourself rather than pushing. I think that's true for creativity as well. And, you know, uh, and, you know, to your point about like you have your focus has been elsewhere, which I think is really great. And you have to know that that's where it needs to be right now. And it's your, your violence there and life is long. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I need to hear that. Oh, good. <laughs> thank you. That's, that's beautiful. Well, the show is let it out. So is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you that you never get to talk about? Or, you know, this is really the time I ask people to recommend things. So is there a book, movie, song, podcast, place, anything that you want to recommend that you didn't get to? Anything else you want to to share? I think we hit a lot of stuff. So I don't really think there's anything else that I can think of off the top of my head to share. But when you did say recommend a book, I will say, because we talk so much about women and being young and all that kind of stuff. There was this book called The Women's Code or Just Women Code by Alyssa Beattie. Yeah, she did the podcast when it came out. Oh my God. See, that book, when yeah. I, I read that, that was another thing that I was like, why did nobody give this totally to me when I was schools. like 12 or 13? Yeah. Like, why? Why? So I wish that that was like every girl just got that book when she was 13. So I would recommend that book. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, I, I'll link to that episode. It's funny. I was in Paris before the pandemic and I met up with someone, a, a new friend there. And she w- Camille was reading that book and, and I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I remember this book. And she was like, I found out about this book on your podcast like four years ago, but I had forgotten that I had interviewed Elisa Vitti because I've done so many of these, you know, we're almost at 400 and I don't think my grandmother like knew 400 people, you know what I mean? Like I'm starting to forget, and, but I'm so glad you brought it up because I need to revisit it as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thank you again so much. We end by letting out a deep breath together. So are you down? Yes, for sure. Okay, inhale, let it out. Mm, I love that. Me too. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening. I really love talking to her, like I said, and I'm grateful that you're here. If you are new, I hope you stick around, linger, check out our really robust archive there 
are nearly 400 episodes in there now and I hope you come back and listen next week and if you want to keep in touch I write a weekly newsletter called the let it out letter which sends you not only the new episodes and show notes you you don't have to stop and write down all the links that you're hearing about here but also a essay or something that I've been pondering that week so if this resonated with you anything that we spoke about here you'll probably like that the link to join will be in the show notes and for everyone who read my let it out letter last week and sent me a message about it thank you so much i took a really long time to write that and i'm happy that it hit you like it hit me. And if you haven't read it yet, or if you're new, it was about nostalgia and crushes and limerence and romantic obsession and intrusive thoughts. And I am really happy that we were able to have that conversation. So if you want more content around that topic, let me know. And just in general, let me know what you want to hear more of on the podcast this year, this season. I really would love to hear from you. I'm at Katie Dalebow on Instagram and this podcast, Let It Out, has its own Instagram. It's at Let It Out with three T's. That's the best way to find out about new episodes when they go up and other, much like the newsletter, other meanderings from me. And of course, follow our guest on Instagram, Tori, if you're not already. She's really incredible. And let us all know that you have listened all the way to the end. I'm going to give an emoji of the week, which is her favorite emoji. I just emailed her and she told me what it is. It was a real surprise. Maybe she'll clarify why, but you can just comment that on my Instagram, on her Instagram and on Let It Out's Instagram to let us know that you listened all the way to the end. You don't even have to put any words. It will just be this secret code between us, letting us know that you stayed. A quick housekeeping thing before I tell you that. So the year before the pandemic, it was 2019. (laughs) It was a really wild year for me and I had had a tough breakup and I was just honestly really depressed and therefore open to any sort of advice from anyone at all from someone I would randomly meet to a family member who I normally wouldn't connect with to strangers friends everyone and I was reading a lot and and compiling a lot of that useful insight and information because that's just what I tend to do when I like something or I learn something, I want to share it. And that's why I think I started a blog so many years ago. That's why I started this podcast. And I got the idea to put everything I was learning about creativity, about process, about procrastination, change, transitions, failure, heartbreak, all into writing prompts because that's kind of where I tend to put things is a journaling prompt. I wrote a book about journaling and also activities and ways to get out of my head and more into the world. And so I created these little online self-study courses called kits. And maybe you've heard me talk about them before. Maybe you're new here and you haven't, but they're all available right now. And I might stop offering them soon just to make room for some new projects that I want to try and allow space for but right now if it's something that you are interested in if you want to set intentions for the year i know it's nearly february but i'm unconvinced that setting an intention on february 1st is that much different than setting an intention earlier in january or really at any time so we have one about goal setting and changing your relationship to resolutions that you know some people tell me they do on their birthday or 
you know, on the new moon. It can really be done at any time. We have one about writing, both writing to share and writing for emotional wellness. We have one about interviewing and podcasting. So all of the kits right now until the end of the month, which is very, very soon, are 22% off with the code 22 written out. The link is in the show notes. If you have any questions about any of them at all, let me know. Again, I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. The emoji for this week is the chick coming out of hatching out of the egg. You know, that one? That is Tori's favorite emoji. I asked her which emoji she wanted to use. That's the one she said, commented on my Instagram, on her Instagram. I really like it. I think it's cool. Maybe because of her farm and like renewing being born. I think it's pretty cool. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I will speak to you next week and maybe on the internet before then. Bye.